back to the Pacific Century, a Hoover Institution podcast on China, America, the Indo-Pacific, and the fate of the world. I'm Misha Oslin, a fellow at the Hoover Institution, joined by my partner in crime, John Yu, professor of law at the University of Berkeley, University of California, Berkeley, and a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution. John, say hello. Hello, everybody. Hello, Misha. Great to be back, even in the midst of the pandemic. Thank God for high technology invented in Silicon Valley, where I can see you and your horrid, horrid mustache. We call it the mustachioed mauler from Maryland now, John. <laughs> Got to keep it light because once again, folks, we are broadcasting from our respective prison cells at home. But today, today, we have a special guest, one who is going to bring sweetness and light to this program and a lot of incredibly fascinating information about China. John, we are really, really uh, pleased to have Anastasia Lin join us. Um, for those of you, you probably know her if you pay attention to China, if you pay attention to the Pacific region. Uh, but if you don't, Anastasia uh, is a Canadian now based up, uh, well, I think is splits time between New York and Canada, uh, but has become a bete noire of the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, she won the Miss World Canada title back in 2015, uh, and yet was prevented by Beijing from traveling to China for the pageant because of her outspoken stance on human rights and issues that relate to governance in China. Uh, her family has faced persecution and intimidation, and yet Anastasia has continued to speak out using public fora in the United States and Canada, trying to bring attention to the reprehensible practices of the Communist Party. Uh, currently, she is, I guess it's a fellow, uh, at least affiliated with the McDonald Laurier Institute, which is a think tank uh, up in Canada, as their ambassador for Canada-China relations. So we are absolutely thrilled that Anastasia has joined us to give us insights that we really can't get anywhere else. Anastasia, welcome to our program. Thank you for having me. Um, there's there's so much to talk about. Uh, obviously, people are are interested in your personal story. Probably a lot of them know that. But when you and I were were talking to prepare for uh, this, you started talking about your life in China before you came uh, to the West, before you came to Canada, and and talked in particular about um, what your, your your family went through, what your mother went through. Uh, she was a professor, and your own experiences in the educational system. And for all that we talk about Canada, uh, Canada, well, we talk a lot about Canada, but today we're going to talk about China. For all we talk about China, um, it, it's often from very much the outside perspective. We're always looking in as policymakers or historians or whatever, and very rarely are we able to talk with people who went through the system and then have come out through the other side. And so I'm just wondering if, if you'd be willing to talk a little bit about what we talked about to get how do we understand the mindset of those who are raised and go through the educational system in China today? Right. Well, that's a huge topic. Where do I start? I guess with my parents. Um, my f in this generation of my family, uh, my father, our political background, except for me, everybody else is okay. I don't know if you're familiar with the term political background. No, not really. Can you explain no. that? Um, so in China, since Communist Party took over, 
um, political background in some way basically means that you have sworn loyalty to Communist Party and you have never had any problem with them, um, be it if you have, uh, you have never done democracy movement, uh, you have never joined, let's say, um, the Tibetans, Uyghurs, Falun Gong, underground Christian, um, you're just a loyal communist um, or just a normal Chinese person who's never got in trouble. So then your political background is okay. And for my family, my father, he um, was a very successful businessman. And my mother, she was a lecturer in a university. She taught Western economics and international finance. So they were spotless, supposedly, and not dissidents. So our political background is fine. And because they were sort of the elites of the society, therefore people like that are often attracted to, encouraged to join the Communist Party. So my father was a communist member. When it comes to me, I was born um, in Hunan, which is where Mao Zedong is from. <laughs> not really proud of that. Um, and when I was in... You're not related, are you? It wasn't a family connection. We're actually from the same town. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. I know. <laughs> but I do believe what Chinese medicine always say. If you have a poison somewhere within seven feet, you're going to find the solution to that poison. So I hope that is the case. So um, when I was in elementary school and middle school, for the two years I went in China, um, Chinese classrooms also have student council structures like the student council. So we will have students elect um, different students for different posts. And it's a little bit like the government. And then there's also a communist post. So in middle school, I was the class head, Banjang, um, for a year. And then also there is a communist class head called Zhong Duizhang. Mm. Um, you speak Chinese? Little bits here and there. Okay. So because my political background is okay, and I was, a lot of the student council members were helping the teachers and uh, to indoctrinate the classmates. Um, we often organize discussions in class after school or using class time sometimes to get everybody to show their opinion and talk about their opinion of current events. And mostly would be about government's public enemy. I remember very specifically when I was in China in 2000, uh, around 2000, 2001, at that time there was very, uh, the persecution of Falun Gong just started in 1999 and 2000. And then in the news, like the official Chinese media, there were these uh, fabricated news meant to demonize this group. And part of my job was to sit the students down, even in the middle of the class time, we turn on the TV, we start to show CCTV, and they will show these fabricated news, and then everybody will have an opinion sharing session. Of course, you can only share one opinion. There's, you can't really be talking about a true mind. And also, people who, like classmates who have family that practices Falun Gong, or they themselves would... Um, I, I know stories where people were really forced into silence because people at that age, kids at that age, they really can't face that kind of adversity. Mm -hmm. So I did things like that to organize the classroom to um, do these indoctrination works. So 
that's part of what I did in middle school. But back in kindergarten, we had these um, songs that we were taught to us about how communist government is closer to you than your own family, how communist government is always glorious, righteous, and and it's embedded in in the songs that were traditional Chinese tunes, and they just replace lyrics. Um, and you were taught it when you're very young. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of embedded in the head. Now when I listen to those tunes, those lyrics come to mind, and it's an automatic response. It's a warm feeling. Does that make mm-hmm. any sense? Let me okay, ask you, Anastasia, did you, when you were uh, growing up, did you just uh, believe everything that you were hearing in school, or you said uh, something like, a, I think, a real truth or inner mind, or is it the case that you were pantomiming or acting out what the party wanted you to do, but on the inside or at home, you didn't necessarily believe it or you were questioning it or you wondered about other concepts like individual rights or freedom and things like that? There was no alternative. There was nothing else that was fed to you. Um, even at home, my mother's grandfather was executed in one of communists earlier movement before the cultural revolution mm-hmm. for some nominal reason but i th- uh, we think that it was really because he was a successful businessman and at that time they were branded as capitalist um and so then the family went through really hard time and i think when it comes to my mother's generation they don't talk about it at all because when you teach the kids your family history or what happened to us. And then the kids will go to school and the teacher asks them and the kids don't know anything. They're going to tell the teacher and the teacher is going to report your family and all that. It's not a safe environment. What Communist Party did to Chinese culture and Chinese people is to break the very basic trust between people. You can't trust anybody. You can't trust your friends, your closest friends. Your private messages will be revealed to the public and being criticized. You might have public humiliations that follow that. So that's not something that my family would talk about. And plus, and I observed this in my father as well, he has a, this is not disrespect to him. This is, he has an outward-oriented survival instinct that comes out sometimes especially when I talk to him on the phone about Communist Party or what they're doing to Chinese people. And he would immediately go into that, Communist Party is the best, they're most glorious, they have lifted Chinese people out of poverty. This is something I think he acquired through the Cultural Revolution, where he thinks that he has to do that for survival, because that's what people did. He doesn't believe it, does he? When you're being placed in a totalitarian regime for your entire life, I don't think you know what you believe anymore. That's a huge and you were, never, you were never given any other alternative values, freedom. The idea of freedom is also manipulated. The idea of our traditional values is also manipulated. I'll give you a very small example of how Communist Party manipulated these very simple universal values into their own advantage. In Chinese, um, let's say, Taoist school, there's a concept of non-doing, non-action. Um, in most simple term, it would just be, a, it's encouraged that a person let things go naturally, follow the natural pattern of the universe. What have ever happened to you, don't resist it. Accept it and just 
move on. It's non-action. But in Chinese Communist Party's term, the Taoist non-action then became, we are not going to do anything politically. Don't ever strive for your rights. Don't ever be active in the public sphere. Don't ever try to start a movement. Be non-active and give all your rights to the government and let them take the decision. Therefore, you're no longer following the law of the universe by the Communist Party. So one thing that we talk about a lot and and you'll hear from Western analysts is, you know, well, no one really believes the Communist Party in China. They, they, they know that they are a, you know, a corrupt cabal that that takes away freedoms, but there's been a social contract, so to speak, which is there There has been a, a generation's worth of growth for for no political freedom, and, and that the Chinese people have, um, you know, have accepted this. Uh, the, the reverse of what happened in the Soviet Union, where they opened up the political sphere uh, before they had provided economic reform, and, and they lost control of that process. But are you saying then that, by the way, and so what people say then is that, you know, there, there's not a lot of actual support. There's only 90 million Communist Party members out of 1.3 billion people. So no one really actually supports the party unless they're, they're benefiting from it directly. But your point about when you live in a totalitarian system, you don't, you don't know what to think. You've, you've never actually heard uh, of as much of a variety of viewpoints or, or certainly been able to express them and debate them the way we do here. So are you saying then that, that um, there's actually, there is a lot of support, even if people don't understand why they support, they do support the party. Um, and they see it as representing China in some way, as opposed to some sort of alien growth that's been latched on to this traditional civilization. Well, I guess it depends on what your definition of support is. Does it mean that there are actual communist member that it acts that is actively helping the party directly persecute part of the group? Or do you mean by a silent bystander watching other people or your friends or neighbor being persecuted without saying anything. In that sense, that's also a form of support. Um, yes, there might not be Chinese, many Chinese these days would articulate that I support the Communist Party and the Marxist idea and the Leninist idea. They might not articulate that. But what the Communist Party did is they severed other source of power. Therefore, you only have the party, the political power, that gives you strength. And there's no humanity in there. Does that make any sense? It does. Uh, it does, because we've, we've grown accustomed to the, the... It's interesting the way you put it, because we've had this debate... In the West, especially, I think, among people who argue in favor of engagement and, and continued engagement, that what you're really dealing with is a technocratic elite in China, right? Your point about there's no humanity is almost irrelevant in the debates that we have, because we're dealing with a, 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 a group that has modernized China in the space of a generation, uh, has shown that they can navigate the global economy and global politics and the like. And so, therefore, it's almost a value neutral you can do business with them but what you're indicating is this this fascinating fusion and it, and it's something that that I've wanted to talk about more uh inside of china with the way that traditional culture has been co-opted 
by the party. And you, you, you've mentioned some of it. Um, we obviously have reporting on, uh, on the way that Xi Jinping has brought Confucianism back into the vogue. I think probably more important than that is legalism, which is obviously, of course, a justification for a strong and intrusive, powerful state. Um, but does anyone believe that? Well, that's my question to you. I mean, to what degree do, do Chinese still understand traditional culture and philosophy and thought, or has it all been absorbed and transmuted in the way that you described by the party? I don't think Chinese, well, I wouldn't use traditional culture specifically um, to say that they have been severed from that, because they are. And I think what What's more important is that they have been severed from the humanity, the very basic human instinct. For example, family is a unit around the world since time immemorial in different culture that you can trust your wife, you can trust your father to not report on your private thoughts. When that kind of trust is broken, when a person is placed entirely in isolation and there is no moral guidance, then it becomes a bottomless dark hole. Does that make any sense? Mm -hmm. Then the person becomes powerless from the inside. And then it's up to the external to manipulate him however he wants, because there's no strength that comes from there. Could you, could you tell us a little bit to, to continue with this? And then I want to turn it over to John, but I just want to ask if you could talk a little bit about the role of religion in China today. Because, of course, what you're talking about is, is actually the role or the space that religion often fills. You just talked about morality, and, and morality is a guide that is separate from the state, uh, separate from economics. Uh, it, it's interior, um, it's ethical, and, it, and it's often focused on the family and the, and the local community. What's the state uh, of, of play in, um, in the religious sphere today in China? We've heard a lot about, of course, um, the, the Muslims, the Uyghurs out in Xinjiang who have, who have been uh, sinified and the attempt to sinify them. We've heard that there's an enormous growth in Christianity, and of course that's one reason that the party is destroying churches. What do you hear and know from the inside about how the, the power of religion or its weakness today in China? Well, the traditional sense of religion, we have uh, three Ming China, uh, Chinese traditional belief, the Buddhist school, the Tao school, and the Confucianism. The -hmm. former two are more in a form of spiritual religion, but the third one, Confucianism, is more like um, an in-the-human-world version of Taoism, if Mm -hmm. that makes sense. So when these traditional beliefs are completely severed during the Cultural Revolution, what happened is that the people who had institutional memory, be them um, intellectuals or like, uh, we don't really have clergy members, we have monks and people do, as a culture, is almost like a, we worship the divine. Um, mm-hmm. There is a belief of a higher moral authority. We don't call them any kind of God specifically, there is no name, but we call them the Lao Tian Ye Sky, the mm-hmm. heaven. So once that moral authority is undercut and is entirely left upon the human beings to figure out what is right, that's when Communist Party has the space to come in to manipulate however they want to. Mm-hmm. And so I would say that even though there are forms of uh, so-called 
I use the word so-called, Buddhism or Taoism that comes up, and even Chinese Communist Party encourages them. But they have a communist head, the Buddha Association, the Communist Buddha, like that kind of thing. Then basically they still place communism above God or heaven. Then that's not real belief. Mm -hmm. So there is an emerging... Um, fast-growing Christian population inside China. And I think that was part of the reason why um, in the late 1990s, the Qigong movement, where mm -hmm. Falun Gong is a school of, but there are many other Qigong movements. Um, Qigong is like Chinese yoga. During the Cultural Revolution, when people had that spiritual vacuum and they have nothing to believe in, these yoga practices from Taoism and Buddhism start to emerge in society. And that's what the older generation of Chinese people really grabbed onto. Um, there isn't too much of a spiritual side to it, so they're not going to get persecuted for it. But then it's also beneficial for their health and mental state. So then in the end of 1990s, most of these Qigong schools are being either being persecuted or they are gone or disappeared. The one that publicly resisted is Falun Gong, and there's, the persecution still go on today. Um, so it's in human innate in nature that it would want something that's of a higher moral authority. If we look at it as the universe itself or life itself, that is something very powerful. And no matter how strong the totalitarian is, that part can never be severed. Therefore, the struggle with Communist Party is a constant, ever-revolving one, evolving one. As long as they exist, people are not going to have peace. So let me, let me ask you, Anastasia, along those lines. So when you, you came to Canada when you were 13, it says on your bio uh, from China, um, what was it uh, either growing up then in Canada or after that that caused you to want to become such a tough critic on that country where for the first 13 years you were taught that, the, right, that they were the best government on earth and taking care of everybody and doing the closer to you than your mother, which as an Asian guy, very hard for me to understand anything getting between you and your mother. But what, what caused you to want to become such a critic? of your former country? Well, uh, my goal was never to becoming a critic. I think it's more breaking free from what was tying me up before. And I, the, the process is a very long one. It wasn't that I came to Canada all of a sudden, I breathed the air of freedom and then I changed my mind, which is what a lot of Western thinkers that I talk to, they're like, why are those Chinese students in Western universities not changing their mind about Chinese communism and they're still defending communism in classrooms? Because in the, the indoctrination put a self-censoring system into my... Um, in, in, into everybody's mind. So once they, once you hear anybody attacking communism or Chinese Communist Party, then those Chinese students are going to react as you're attacking me, you're attacking my motherland, and that's not okay. It's an emotional response. It's not a rational one. My mother, as an educator, saw that that was just not going to even though innately she knows it's wrong, but on the surface she couldn't still quite articulate what was wrong when we were in China. She just knows that the Western education is going to be messed, like the free education in the West is going to be much better for me. 
at least that I'm not being taught political slogans. So when I went to Canada um, when I was 13 years old, the first thing I noticed is that all the students were very relaxed, <laughs> very chill. Huh. It's, it's like they're not always constantly trying to uptight to, um, it's a survival instinct. It's like a beautiful, elegant animal. Um, when it's attacked, it's very tight. And then they're not actively working toward an exterior perfection or, or alignment, like um, to be aligned with a party or a political idea. They were very much left alone to be themselves. And they're told that that's okay. And that was the first difference that I noticed. And then when they're a Chinese scholar, a teacher coming to my school as exchange scholar, uh, the first two years I still helped to defend the Communist Party in our social sciences class with them. I, so I was like the Chinese student, like, <laughs> no, you're wrong. You're totally misunderstanding us. The China you see is a, is a, is a manipulated idea. Um, it's not the truth. You should listen to me. I'm the Chinese. And then I got uh, my mom. She started to introduce different news source. Um, there was some Hong Kong paper that was talking about June 4th massacre. And then there's also the Tibetans that they, like I can see them sometimes, their protests. Mm. And then the Falun Gong, there's handing out flyers in Chinatown. And I also went to Uyghur students' um, house to teach them piano. So I got in touch with these different dissident groups. And I know they're... Can I pause you there? Just so interestingly, they were all uh, people who are dissidents from China who had also come to Canada. It wasn't necessarily from talking to Canadians per se, but you met other people who'd also left China too, and they broadened your horizons, as it were. Mm -hmm. I think through talking to Westerners, people who live in mm -hmm. Canada, their value can only be felt in a... a a period of time. It's not a revelation that one day someone's going to tell you, no, your entire belief system is wrong. But through talking to these dissidents, it revealed to me a side of China that I never got exposed to before. And there, it created a cognitive dissonance, and I had to go online and search more. So I went online and saw the video of Tiananmen Massacre, and that was a huge shock. Like, it was exciting as well as a little scary because I know beyond that point, there's no turning back. And so after that, I also went on the street to um, join their parade. And sometimes there will be Western politicians that will go to these assemblies to speak. And that's just not the same as China because in China, the politicians are the one that everybody worships, like almost try to suck up to hmm. because they're dictators. Like everybody surround whoever is the center of the Communist Party, um, the Deng Xiaoping thought, the, um, the, the Jiang thought, or like that's something you have to actively study and align yourself with. But here in the West, the politicians are sucking up to the people. And that's a huge, like a, a profound difference that I noticed. So to be familiar, to familiarize myself with the democratic process was also a very, very long time. Could I, could I ask, oh, go ahead. 
Well, one last question then is, um, so you've been, uh, I guess you could say you're a human rights activist, although you said you didn't start out that way uh, now. Um, but at the same time, during this period uh, where you've been doing this, China seems to be getting more and more repressive, not less, and more and more centralized government power, uh, not less. Um, what, you know, you, what, what do you think is a successful strategy or tactics to try to change the direction China is moving in internally? Or is it the case that we can't really do anything from the outside? It has to come from inside China itself now. It has to come from the inside. But the West also, everybody who have the freedom to help should also utilize their freedom. It doesn't mean that we also don't have a responsibility. Inside China, there's no avenue for recourse. When a human rights lawyer is arrested or someone is arrested, the political prisoner of conscience, they don't have a voice. And oftentimes the only tool that they have to stay safe in jail or have better condition in jail is international attention. And that's what we can do. And also how to protect whoever is trying to do the right thing in the West. But what we see right now is the West is compromised to an extent that it's not doing what it's supposed to. I want to jump in on, on that. I think this is, is really important. And you, you obviously you've exercised your freedom uh, living here in the West now. But I think there's it's important. You've been describing to us I think in a way we haven't heard or really had a discussion about uh, this program, at least, about the psychology inside China, at least part of it. I mean, it's an enormous subject, but some of it. Um, there's also a psychology in the West in terms of dealing with China. Uh, and I alluded to it a little earlier when I talked about the idea that well, the party is really, you know, the technocratic elite and you have to sort of deal with them because they're navigating complicated economic and, and political currents in the world. Um, the psychology that that engenders is one in which there are certainly apologetic elements, but there's an element in which value judgments are are, are laid aside um, that we have to somehow dispassionately, and what I'm talking about is sort of policy analysts and practitioners, we have to dispassionately deal with uh, people who act just like we do, so to speak, in the, uh, in the political realm, that, that the, the politics is a sort of a black box. Everybody goes in to this black box and they'll sort of come out at the same end, which is to say you have to figure out how to navigate among groups and so on and so forth. Um, do you believe that there is an ability to deal with the Communist Party uh, and rulers in China as though they are politicians in, in any other country. You, you said, yes, here they suck up to the people and there the people suck up to them. But more fundamentally, um, is it possible that they are, they are simply uh, political actors the way that we are, and therefore we can come to an agreement with them, which I think is the psychology of many who here believe that you just have to keep attempting to engage? Or is there something different? Uh, and, and I guess what I'd actually like you to get at, if you could, because people here don't understand it, is the type of uh, repression that you yourself have faced, if you don't mind talking a little bit about it, or your family has faced, because there's still a mask, in a way, over the, the nature of the Communist Party in the West. 
and and you're able to pull that off a little bit, I think, and and tell us, no, they're just like everyone else. They just care about power or there's something different there. The mentality you are describing of let's treat communist official just like any other official is something that I have heard over and over again. So to simplify that, basically you're saying to treat, to not treat communist party as what it is, but what we hope them to be. Right. And that is a profound mistake, and I think we, we made it several decades ago. And what we're do, dealing with right now, the economic influence, their control on many things, is a historically inherited misjudgment on policy. We cannot deny that these people have been educated inside a totalitarian regime that they their value system is almost entirely, it's entirely incompatible with ours. Given the example, the treatment of the pandemic in Wuhan, at the beginning, when the first case was discovered, when I read the news, it was, um, the first case was December 1st, but right now it seems like there are even earlier cases. When they knew about the news, the first thing they did is to arrest people who tell the truth is that they're hoping that this thing will go away on its own. If we don't report it, then our, um, the period of time when we're the administration of the city is not going to have a spot, a sting. Therefore, my chance of moving up to the central government is even, it, it's better. My future is bright. So they're willing to gamble on human life. Here, we respect the innate worth of a human being disregarding your beliefs, skin color. Over there, they don't treat human beings as human beings. And you can see that reflected in the way they, they talk about Chinese people as well. For example, Chinese government has always given the West the reason that, the reason why we ha don't have free election in, in China, we don't have freedom for information, is because Chinese people are not good enough to have rule of law. They don't get it. Like they're not, some of them are not educated. I actually went back to Xinhua News Agency or Chinese Communist School, like their, um, their interviews to find some of these languages. So they're saying that it's the Chinese people that's not good enough to have the same rights as people in the West. Now, by treating communist official as any other official in the world, you're basically assisting on their persecution on the Chinese people. Does that make any sense? It does. But then what would you say to those who say, but you have no other choice? How else can you deal with China and its government if you don't deal with the officials? How do you deal with a high school bully? That's the way they were taught. They were taught the fittest survive. They were taught strength work, fear, threats work, greed work. And all these had worked in the West. That's what they have been using. The nasty part of human nature when you want to say something, they threaten you, they intimidate you. When they see that you have a loophole, maybe you want interest, financial commercial interest, they bribe you, they buy, like they, they use commercial interest, your greed to control you. So Anastasia, you mentioned uh, COVID and the way it revealed the little value that the Chinese Communist Party puts on human life. Do you think that the pandemic and the Communist Party's failure to stop the outbreak and all the things it revealed 
about the Communist Party and the economic harm it's causing in China and the rest of the world provides some kind of opportunity, political opportunity, social opportunity for critics of the regime, activists to try to begin some change in the country that might eventually lead to a, a different kind of government? This is a really good question. Thank you very much. Now, I think in order for us to be able to talk more about the Communist Party's damage to the world and people, you should be able to talk. But the Chinese Communist Party have been very successful in their way of manipulating Western rhetoric as well. They're branding whoever criticized China as racist. They're talking about oh, if you want to criticize or even call the coronavirus, uh, uh, Wuhan virus, then you're being racist. Well, there are many, many viruses that were named by the place that they, they were first discovered. So that kind of, they're very good also to play into the identity politic of the West and also branding themselves as standing with the Chinese people. If you criticize the Communist Party, you're criticizing Chinese people, which is entirely not true. And and phenomenon that I really uh, observed during this pandemic is that in the past, when I speak out, for the very least I can speak for myself, I noticed that the West are uh, the journalists, uh, academia, I would be get more resonance from them. But in this pandemic, for some reason, Chinese people are way more willing to be vocal about it. And um, my Oxford speech, which Misha saw, that one was being translated into Chinese. And then so many Chinese people have commented below. In the past, I don't read Chinese comments online because there were so many communist trolls and I don't want to bother my therapist, so I'd rather just stay away. <laughs> you don't have a therapist. Misha has a therapist. You don't have John a is my therapist. <laughs> this is my therapy. <laughs> <laughs> Could you actually... Sorry, the point being that I, I don't look at those comments in the past, but right now, the comments, they came to me through Twitter, through Facebook. Um, it, it just all Chinese people really speaking up, feeling like this is the voice that we need. Is it because people see now that the Chinese Communist Party is not effective, that they're it sounded to me like they had this kind of bargain with the people, you know, accept repression, give up your rights, as you mentioned, in exchange, we're going to keep the economy growing, we're going to modernize the country. Is it that uh, COVID revealed that the Communist Party was really more interested just in staying in power? And that's why they didn't care about the people who lived in Wuhan. They didn't try to warn the world about what was coming. I think it's also something that clicked in their mind that, oh, all those social problems we're facing, all the suffering that we're facing is because of the Chinese Communist Party. Because in the West, the communists have always told them like um, uh, the different persecution, social problems that China uh, internally has is because of small different groups, internal enemy, uh, um, like individual communist official, but it's not because of the system. It's not because of the entire system. And I think in this pandemic, they're able to link that it was this, it's the system that is causing all the suffering. And I read some Chinese, com like Chinese people's comments online it's really moving. I read this, um, someone said, if I knew that it were going to be like this, I would speak up. I, I don't know if I translate it fully to the extent that he meant it. It's almost like the last pushback a human being can have when you're being pushed to the wall. 
in the past, many the, the reason why Communist Party is able to sustain their power is because they always persecute a small part of the society, branding them as public enemy, demonizing them. So the rest of the population will stay quiet. And in Chinese, we call it killing the chicken to warn the monkey. It's controlling people by fear. And so the rest of the population will say, as long as it's nothing to do with me, I'm going to draw a clear line. I have, in Chinese, we call it 划清界线, which is draw a clear line. It started in, probably even before the Cultural Revolution. But in the Cultural Revolution, it was used. You can see it in like some modern Chinese movie, like Farewell My Concubine. Um, like Those are really good stories uh, during that time it's like they draw a clear line it has nothing to do with them that's those people suffering but in this pandemic it touched everybody everybody's primal survival instinct and made them realize the system is threatening directly to them and i think this is what happened around the world too so anastasia unfortunately we're getting close to the end of our time um i just want to ask one last question which is um do you have hope then that one day the communist system will collapse in China? Of course, that could be very traumatic, but, or have you resigned yourself that it, it's going to be there essentially eternally for eons and eons? But there's no one party authoritarian regime that's stayed in power forever. China has 5,000 years of glorious culture. Communist Party had only been there for seven decades. It was successful in undercutting the courage of my father's generation. But I also see that the humanity still exists as long as they survive. Our culture has way more resilience than this regime that is um, against any kind of common logic, um, it's anti-human. So I'm very hopeful and through this pandemic and in the last week or so, I heard so many Chinese people's voices. I see they're able to jump over their fear to start to express and it's the most beautiful thing. I'm totally hopeful. But at the same time, I hope that the people in the West who have the freedom can also choose to do the right thing because this history is going to turn its page and soon we're all going to be facing a new era. I hope sooner or later we will. But then when like, the future generation asks you, what are you doing when that was happening, when Hitler was in power or when the Communist Party was in power, what were you doing? Then... You want to give them a satisfying answer. Well, clearly you are uh, one of those giving the answer. Uh, and your courage and your willingness to take personal risk and family risk is, uh, is a testament uh, not only to your strength, but uh, should also be a, a model, I think, for many. And uh, we are just grateful that you took time to talk to us today. Um, but give us insights, honestly, that we haven't uh, had uh, that we haven't been able to get because we we deal with it like uh, some policy folks and what you're really getting at is the soul of China and and the 
the lack of soul of this party. So uh, thank you for your time. Thank you for what you're doing. Uh, and we certainly wish you the best of luck going forward and stay safe. Thank you. So for John Yu, uh, this is Misha Oslin having had a wonderful conversation with Anastasia Lin. Uh, we hope you will join us again for another episode of The Pacific Century. Bye-bye. Bye, everybody. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.